Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. You can find me on Spotify, on Stitcher, on iTunes, or uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever they're calling it these days. Um, So yeah. And so before we begin tonight, uh, starting out with obviously some moon landing stories because it is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, um, and we'll also talk about some other things, but I just want to take a moment to talk about and to let you know if you have not already heard uh, that Martin Screlly or uh, Shikreli, however you pronounce it, frankly, uh, the odious former CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, who uh, was notorious for having raised the price of a life-saving HIV drug called Darprim, uh, has lost his appeal. So he had tried to appeal his conviction Um, on kind of a weird uh, technicality, which is that the judge didn't give the jury the correct um, instructions, but the um, prosecution was able to successfully uh, argue that he actually gave them more detailed uh, instructions than they may necessarily have needed. And you can't possibly say that that's a bad thing. And so he was sentenced to seven years uh, a couple of years ago, actually for unrelated securities frauds. Uh, but like with Al Capone, we'll take what we can get. <laughs> and so, you know, it is really satisfying, though, um, with another big famous case that is in the news these days, uh, one of my favorite law bloggers, um, Ken White, noted that it's all well and good for us to uh, sort of cheer when these sorts of things happen, when someone actually gets what uh, they supposedly deserve through actual justice. Um, But it would behoove us much more to really work on the fact that for, you know, many, 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 many people in this country, uh, the kinds of representation, the kinds of deals, the kinds of special privileges that people like this get are not available to the vast majority of Americans. Um, Our criminal justice system is very, very, very in trouble. And while it's great to be happy that someone like this is actually being forced to spend time in jail, uh, is being forced to pay out huge uh, amounts of both restitution and fines. But it's really more important to remember that we really still need to be more focused on the overall uh, situation in our criminal justice system. But anyways, that's a different uh, (laughs) show's topic. And uh, so, yes, do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up right after this at 7. I don't know that they'll talk about uh, any of that, but they'll certainly talk about something interesting. Okay, so let us move now into talking about the anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. Now, um, I'd recommend 
either going today or finding it in the archives, the Google Doodle, as it has a great little animated video, there's some real audio from the astronauts involved in Apollo. And as always, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, Google is very good about those sorts of things. So we all know that it was an amazing feat to send humans to the moon. Um, just the amazing, just some of the things that they used and some of the things that they did, uh, you know, the computer processing power that they had, which is, you know, orders of magnitude less than anything that we use today. And they were able to send people to the moon. But of course, it wasn't all smooth sailing. There were a lot of problems and some very near catastrophic failures. And in fact, there were a couple of catastrophic failures. Um, of course, one of the things that I always like to remind people is that getting humans into space is extremely hard. We know this. We've had tragedies in our memories. Um, unless you are very young, um, you know, the Challenger. I was a child when the Challenger um, explosion happened, and that was really horrible. And so getting into space is really hard. And so I'm actually going to talk a little bit about someone had put out this list uh, of sort of the problems that happened along the way. And I think it's interesting to talk about that because, you know, as much as we want to talk about the amazing things that NASA is doing and all of the triumphs that they've done, it's important to remember this sort of thing because it's important to remember that, uh, you know, these are real people, this is real life. And it's not just perfect, everything goes well. And so um, we need to be really cognizant of both the highs and the lows. So um, obviously, to start out, uh, if you're not familiar, the first Apollo mission, Apollo 1, uh, was actually a complete tragedy. On January 27th, 1967, three astronauts, Robert Chaffee, Ed White, and Virgil Gus Grissom died when a fire ignited in the command module that they were rehearsing in. So they were actually still in a, basically in a warehouse um, or a, a hangar, and they were just doing a rehearsal. And so it's suspected that a stray spark from damaged wires combined with a pure oxygen environment and flammable materials inside of the module left, led to an intense fire. So intense that the astronauts were unable to escape because the door was pressurized and opened inward. So the pressure caused by the fire was too great to overcome the pressure difference and they were unable to open the door. Now, this delayed the mission for a year as NASA obviously redesigned the door, set in, uh, put in place other safety protocols, but also, you know, dealt with the death of its intrepid uh, astronauts. Now, Neil Armstrong himself had a brush with death the year before the Apollo 11 launch. He was piloting the lunar landing research vehicle, which was an aircraft meant to stimulate simulate conditions on the moon during the landing. However, there was a propellant leak that resulted in a total loss of all control. Um, and so Armstrong ended up having to eject while the lander ended up impacting in a fiery crash. Uh, there were also, during the actual Apollo um, mission, there faced alarms. Um, so there were some alarms that came on, but luckily 
uh, mission control was able to tell them like, as long as that clears, you're fine. Um, and it did clear. And so that was fine. And then there were a couple of others, but that was okay. Um, and they also had lower than expected fuel upon landing on the surface. So of course, this was the first real, uh, crack at this. And so they actually missed the projected landing spot. Uh, so there was obviously a landing spot that NASA had wanted them to get to because they had already scoped it out and thought it would be safe to land there. But unfortunately, they overshot that landing spot. And so Armstrong had to maneuver the lander past an area uh, that had a lot more craters and boulders and just didn't seem like it would be a good place to land um, until he was able to find a safer spot. And obviously they did find a safer spot and everything was fine. Uh, but having done that additional maneuvering used up some of their precious fuel. Luckily, of course, it was built in with a bit of redundancy. And so um, it was basically like having that little bit of uh, fuel in the tank still when the uh, uh, empty light turns on. And so they were able to still, you know, do everything that was fine. Uh, one of the other problems was that with cramped quarters uh, within the craft, because it was, you know, a very small vehicle, um, the astronauts actually were suiting up to put on their portable life support systems, those big backpacks you see in all the pictures. They actually broke off the tip of a circuit breaker, uh, which doesn't sound too bad until you realize it, that that controlled the power running to the engine uh, that would help them lift back up off of the moon. So they radioed mission control to, you know, come up with a workaround while they went out on their uh, famous moonwalk. However, uh, Buzz Aldrin was actually able to figure out the problem himself by the time he returned to the craft. So Aldrin was actually an engineer. And so he looked at the opening where the circuit breaker had been um, and realized that if he could insert something there, he could depress the button that had broken off. Um, and this is from Robert Perlman, a U.S. space historian and the founder and editor of Collect Space. So it turns out that Aldrin used a soft-topped marker, and with it, he was able to press the circuit breaker in, closing it, and from the ground, they were able to tell from telemetry that it had been successful, according to Perlman. And finally, just to sort of add insult to injury, uh, after all of these sort of missteps and misfortunes, a storm actually uh, broke out over the Pacific uh, where they were supposed to uh, splash down, which meant that they had to change that location. And so that was okay as long as everything went to plan, because this meant that they had to wait for the USS Hornet, which was the recovery ship that was sitting in the area of the original splashdown location to actually reach their new destination before they could be retrieved. So if something had happened to the craft, especially if they had, for instance, taken on water, uh, or been flipped upside down, there would have been no one to help them uh, immediately. But of course, as we all know, luckily all went well, everything opened up, the chutes opened up right, uh, the module stayed watertight, and they were able to be recovered successfully. Now, we all know that. 
So again, I've mentioned it many times on this show. Uh, I want to once again reiterate that there is zero possibility uh, that we did not land people on the moon. Uh, we absolutely did with 100% certainty. And um, I just, you know, I understand the psychology of believing in conspiracies, but who no, we definitely went to the moon. It's, it's, it's true. It's real. They did it. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you're feeling nostalgic, you can uh, look up and maybe I'll link to it on the Facebook page, the uh, famous video of Buzz Aldrin actually uh, rather, you know, violently <laughs> uh, putting that point in its place. <laughs> okay. So the thing about the moon or the trip to the moon was that, of course, it was many, many years in the making. And one of the stops along the way was when Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins visited the Kitt Peak National Observatory on May 29th and 30th of 1964. They had come to the observatory near Tucson in order to view the moon through the McMath Pierce Solar Telescope. And so the visitor's logbook for the night actually bears their signatures and a description of the conditions. Seeing fair, flashes of good, moon low. <laughs> and so a month later, on May the 20th, another group of Apollo astronauts were assembled around a table on which a 33-inch image of the moon was displayed by the telescope. Now, the observatory's staff actually created custom-made eyepieces to allow the astronauts to view enlarged sections of the moon simultaneously. Walter Shearer, who eventually became the only astronaut to fly Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions, noted, This crater here looks like a bowl of milk with some drops inside. <laughs> Alan Shepard noted that, I don't see anything smooth at all when I look along the Terminator. And of course, the Terminator is the line between the illuminated and dark sides of the moon. Uh, as you probably know, the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, which means that we only ever see one side of the moon as it orbits the planet. And so there's always that divide between the light side of the moon and the dark. Now, at the time, the Kitt Peak, the Kitt Peak Telescope was one of the most sophisticated solar telescopes in the world. And with its light-gathering ability and superior resolving power, it was an important tool for early moon mapping and photography. So just because it was used for the sun in the day didn't mean they couldn't then use it for the moon in the evening. And in fact, you know, most of the people, most of the scientists using it were actually using it as a sun telescope. So it was easier for them to go in during the night and use it to look at the moon. And so geologists from the University of Arizona and the USGS created maps for the Apollo missions using the telescope. And so um, I'll link to it, um, to some of the photographs from this time period. I looked through some, there was a, um, a slideshow of some of these photos. And one of them uh, actually has... Uh, Gus Grissom in it, studying one of the maps on the moon. And so, yeah, it's kind of bittersweet. That's a few years, obviously, before his death. Um, but the point of bringing the astronauts to Kitt Peak was not just to let them view the moon, but also to train them in scientific techniques. 
researchers needed the astronauts to have the skills and tools to make observations and take samples on the moon so that researchers could have data from the surface. And so they visited meteor and impact craters, as well as lava fields around Arizona to get a feel for what they might look like on the moon. It was basically a crash course in uh, geology. And so that was definitely needed because, of course, they needed to have this the idea of what to bring back. And so dirt and rock brought back by Armstrong and Aldrin and Aldrin was actually distributed to laboratories around the world, and that actually began the age of lunar science. And so, of course, that brings us sort of closer to today, uh, and so we do have a future manned mission, several of them actually, to the moon as far as uh, different whether to the surface of the moon or just to the orbit of the moon uh, that are scheduled for some time in the mid-2020s. And so mission planners for the Lunar Gateway Project have settled on a near rectilinear halo orbit for the outpost. Now, this is a highly elliptical orbit, but it should solve several technical issues and make it easier for both astronauts to leave from the outpost to the moon and for supply missions from the Earth to easily reach the station. And so the Gateway Project is an international endeavor between NASA, the ESA, the Canadian Space Agency, Roscosmos, Roscosmos, I should say, uh, the Japanese Space Agency, and other partners. And so um, it'll kind of be like a mini space station. It'll serve as the staging post for NASA's Artemis program. Uh, it will provide a short-term habitat for the astronauts with a laboratory for scientific research, a depot stocked with supplies and fuel, a communications hub, and a base for sending humans, robots, and other items to the lunar surface. It could also eventually be used as a staging post for missions to Mars. And so that is definitely sort of the long-term goal here. Uh, obviously, people are hoping that this will kind of be, the moon is kind of a stepping stone to Mars. Um, now, of course, there are some concerns because, again, space is hard. It's very hard. Uh, in the long run, an orbit like this will tend to drift away from the object that it's uh, orbiting. And so the station will have to make regular adjustments to the orbit in order to prevent this from happening. Now, each complete orbit will take about seven days, uh, which apparently coincides nicely with the fact that Artemis, uh, the, the actual manned uh, space uh, mission to actually go back to the surface of the moon, plans to leave the astronauts on the moon for a full week. Now, the longest manned mission so far was Apollo 17's with three days. So that's quite a bit longer. Um, and so the orbit will also minimize eclipses, uh, which is important since the craft will be run on solar power. Now, one of the things that will happen is that uh, it will take a little longer to get to the actual uh, station. Uh, it'll be around five days compared with Apollo's three days to the moon, but it will have uh, 
but it basically makes it easier to uh, rendezvous with and the maneuvering will be easier. So uh, it turns out to be a more cost effective and energy efficient way to do it, even though it takes longer. In human spaceflight, we don't fly one single monolithic spacecraft, explains Florian Renk, a mission analyst at NASA and ESA's Operations Center, in a statement. Instead, we fly bits and pieces, putting parts together in space and soon on the surface of the moon. Now, if only NASA can actually be left in peace uh, and given sufficient budget to develop these technologies uh, necessary to actually complete this mission. So um, they've actually announced that there might be a year delay in the um, new launching system that is supposed to actually, you know, take the uh, ship into space. And so they've been having some real trouble developing those rockets. And so having a lot of political pressure on them has been really frustrating because, again, space is hard and sometimes there are delays and sometimes there are failures. And uh, even at the best of times, there can be really terrible catastrophic failures uh, that just completely and utterly, um, you know, devastate a mission be it manned or unmanned. Um, you know, we've talked about some of the famous examples, uh, the Challenger, you know, the famous, uh, you know, image of Carl Sagan dipping a O-ring into a glass of ice water. Um, you know, the, the, uh, Mars orbiter that was supposed to have gotten there, um, you know, in the late nineties, that was supposed to be, you know, this great, amazing, uh, you know, mission that was going to find out all of this technology. And then it turned out that it didn't make it because some one of the contractors had used the wrong um, form of measurement. Uh, and so, yeah, it's hard and terrible things happen sometimes. Silly things happen sometimes that ruin multi-million dollar uh, missions and having pressure like that does not help. And so hopefully, maybe, possibly, some of that will be relieved in the near future. Because I think it is exciting um, to be sending, at least to be building these things that allow us to go to the moon, for instance. Um, I'm still, I, I still stand by my being uh, sort of of two minds about manned missions to Mars, but you know, that's, that's just my personal opinion. Um, I think that there is a lot of good argument to be made for sending people to Mars in certain ways. Um, it's just hard for me because there's so many other competing uh, things that I think that we should be spending time on. And I think that we use those sorts of things like the idea that, oh, we'll just go to Mars uh, and then we'll just move out into the universe from there, uh, that we that some people use that as an excuse not to look at the problems that we have right here at home. Um, so yeah. And, but <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> and so I do have other stories to talk about tonight. So this one's really interesting, at least to me, <laughs> a group of international researchers, uh, went looking for preserved collagen proteins and DNA in the fossilized bones of a horned dinosaur uh, called Centrosaurus. Uh, 
they didn't find any. (laughs) Though some researchers have suggested, and I think I've talked about it before, uh, almost certainly, that there is potential to do that, to have these collagen proteins and DNA be preserved despite fossilization. Um, And so there have been some recent finds in the last few decades that have suggested that under certain incredibly rare circumstances, soft tissue can be preserved in certain ways. Now, if they didn't find any of that, did they find anything? Well, actually they did. They found communities of modern microbes living inside of dinosaur bones. Now, of course, when I say bones, we actually mean mineralized remains of what was once bone. And so, yeah, it's not exactly just bones the way it would be for, say, a a saber-toothed tiger or something like that. Those sorts of things, um, you know, from the Pleistocene are still considered, are still bone. But when it becomes a dinosaur, those have actually been, the bone has completely been um, substituted for by minerals. And so it's basically rock. Um, and so, yeah, this is ground. This is breaking new ground. This is the first time we've discovered this unique microbial community in these fossil bones while they're buried underground, said study lead author Dr. Evan Seta, a researcher at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And I would say that it's another nail in the coffin in the idea of dinosaur proteins getting preserved intact. So obviously he is on the other side of this issue. (laughs) And so, uh, as you might expect, biological tissues like proteins, blood vessels, and other soft tissues are traditionally thought to be the first to break down. And so, uh, when traces of biological materials were recently found in fossils, some researchers thought that we need to reevaluate our beliefs on what can last into fossilization. However, of course, Dr. Seda would disagree. <laughs> My PhD work focused on how soft tissue fossil fo- how soft tissues fossilize and how these materials break down. Some molecules can survive in the fossil record, but I suspect proteins can't. They're unstable on those timescales in the conditions of fossilizations, he explained. Now, to explore whether or not this material really is from the ancient animals, Dr. Seda and colleagues examined 75 million year old fossilized remains of Centrosaurus. Uh, and so that, that had been excavated in a way that was meant to minimize contamination. To collect these bones in a very controlled, sterile way, you need a dig site with a ton of bones because you have to find the bone quickly, expose just enough of one end to know what it is, then aseptically collect the unexposed bit of the bone and surrounding rock all in one. And so they compared the biochemical makeup of the fossils with those of a fairly good analog, modern chicken bones, uh, along with sediments from the dig site in Alberta, Canada, and ancient shark teeth. And so they found that the fossils did not contain ancient collagen proteins, whereas the chicken bones and the ancient but much younger shark teeth both showed the remains of collagen. 
but we see lots of evidence of recent microbes. There's clearly something organic in these bones, Dr. Seda said. We found non-radiocarbon dead organic carbon, recent amino acids, and DNA in the bone. That's indicative that the bone is hosting a modern microbial community and providing refuge. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's impossible to find collagen in dinosaur remains because the few examples that are suspected to exist are from sites with a specific kind of environment, which suggests that the preservation might have been possible. However, it makes it a lot less likely. (laughs) But it turns out that these microbes are actually interesting on their own. It's a very unusual community. About 30% of the sequences are related to Eusebia, which is only reported from places like Etruscan tombs and the skin of sea cucumbers, as far as I know, Dr. Seda said. We aren't sure why these particular microbes are living in the dinosaur bones, but we're not shocked that bacteria are drawn to the fossils. Fossil bones contain phosphorus and iron, and microbes need those as nutrients. And the bones are porous. They wick up moisture. If you were a bacterium living in the ground, you'd probably want to live in a dinosaur bone. (laughs) And so um, beyond just dealing with the idea of whether or not the uh, tissues can be preserved, this discovery could actually also be useful in the emerging field of molecular paleontology. It's one of the new frontiers of modern paleontology. We are beginning to undertake a very different kind of fossil hunting. We're not just looking for bones and teeth, hoping to find new species. We're doing molecular fossil hunting. It opens up entirely new lines of evidence by which to study life in the past. Molecular fossils can tell us things we never thought we'd be able to investigate. Distinguishing what is modern from what is ancient is important, he noted. So that is pretty interesting. Um, I think that probably it is true that they haven't been able to be fossilized, that some of those collagen um, remains might have been from something else. But the jury is still out uh, on whether or not it is 100% uh, or 99.99% uh, true that the collagen isn't able to be preserved at all. All right. It is that time when we should take a break. So uh, I'm going to play some PSAs. Please do stay tuned and I'll come back and we will talk about yet another AI because apparently I've decided this is a theme. Um, (laughs) Write in with comments or concerns if you're uh, sick of hearing about AIs. (laughs) And so, yeah, hang on for just a few moments. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. 
up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. The 2019 National Homelessness Marathon Radio Show will air on Valley Free Radio on Wednesday, July 24th. This program gives homeless people and their allies a chance to speak with the nation about their experiences. It will feature live reports, interviews with advocates and experts, and calls from listeners all over the country. This year, the marathon will be coming from Boston. Tune in from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. and from 9 to 11 p.m. on Wednesday, July 24th, right here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. The Co-Festival presents Displaced, a story from a vanished people on July 26 to July 28 on the Amherst College campus in Amherst, Massachusetts. Deborah Eliza, co-artistic director of Fool's Fury, one of the most respected and dynamic theaters in the Bay Area, is coming to Western Massachusetts in the co-festival performance's five-week habitat season. In a solo show she's calling Displaced, Eliza cracks open the assumptions of her own identity through the story of her father, Edward Ben Eliza, an Iraqi Jew, refugee, Israeli spy, and immigrant. Displaced will be performed at CoFest on July 26, 27th at 8 p.m. and July 28th, Sunday at 4 p.m. For more information, go to CoFest, K-O-F-E-S-T, Com. The Oblivion Express, old-school, free-form, eclectic radio programming every Thursday morning from 6 to 9 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Since 1981, the Oblivion Express has been traveling the musical spaceways in the valley, an eclectic mix of music from the 1940s to today and featuring just about every genre, rock, jazz, blues, world, folk, reggae, and so much more. Join me, DJ Funkadelic Fern, every Thursday morning on the Oblivion Express. love Latin music, then check out Ritmo Latino. Tune in to WXOJ on Sunday evenings from 6 to 7 p.m. I'm your host, Kat, and I'll be playing a mix of styles from around the world, old school to new. Listen for local talent and upcoming events in the Latino community. So finish out your weekend with Latin style. Ritmo Latino, Sunday, 6 to 7 p.m. here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM.
the 2019 National Homelessness Marathon Radio Show will air on Valley Free Radio on Wednesday, July 24th. This program gives homeless people and their allies a chance to speak with the nation about their experiences. It will feature live reports, interviews with advocates and experts, and calls from listeners all over the country. This year, the marathon will be coming from Boston. Tune in from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. and from 9 to 11 p.m. on Wednesday, July 24th, right here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Coming up next will be Civil Politics. So we've been talking about AI or at least I have for some time now, it seems. It just seems to be blossoming right now. And it's it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit scary. Um, but a lot of it right now is just kind of interesting things. So let's talk about another one of those. An AI has mastered the Rubik's Cube. Without the help from a human, other than to have been basically given the Rubik's Cube uh, sort of puzzle. And so previous algorithms had been able to solve the cube puzzle, uh, but those required the input of human programmers. This new system from the University of California, Irvine, was able to solve the puzzle from scratch with both speed and efficiency. Called Deep Cube A, it's able to solve any kind of jumbled Rubik's Cube. It also manages to find the most efficient way to solve the the problem 60% of the time. On average, it requires just 28 moves and 1.2 seconds to figure out the solution. Now, of course, that's not breaking any records. Other systems have been able to do it in just 0.38 seconds. But those systems were specifically trained in order to do the task. DeepCube A, on the other hand, used a method called reinforcement learning. Artificial intelligence can defeat the world's best human chess and go players, but some of the more difficult puzzles, such as the Rubik's Cube, had not been solved by computers, so we thought they were open for AI approaches, said Pierre Baldi, the senior author of the new paper in a press release. The solution to the Rubik's Cube involves more symbolic, mathematical, and abstract thinking, so a deep learning machine that can crack such a puzzle is getting closer to becoming a system that we that can think, reason, plan, and make decisions. So this allows a neural net like DeepCube A to be able to figure out different puzzles at different times, rather than only being programmed with one set of instructions. Reinforcement learning works by programming the neural net to be motivated to achieve a specific goal. The system gains points for deploying correct solutions and loses points for solutions that don't move closer to the goal. This simple set of directions allows the program to slowly move towards the correct solution. And since slow for a computer is super fast for a human, uh, the program can quickly develop an optimum plan for solving the puzzle. Of course, this puzzle actually has 43 quintillion possible combinations, so just using brute force on it won't work. There has to be a strategy in order to solve the problem optimally. The program started with a solved puzzle and then made random moves to scramble, to scramble it. So then what they did was they moved backwards from that, 
And so the object, the program was able to figure it out. And so, um, yeah, interesting, kind of scary. Um, <laughs> we're still not sure about whether or not uh, we are going to have to you know, bow down to our AI overlords soon. Um, but, you know, again, it's another interesting thing. We talked about poker last week. And I know that it seems like, well, why all these games? But, um, you know, the games are sort of a gateway to that kind of thinking that humans do, where you're figuring out different kinds of um, objectives and clues and things like that. And so it's definitely interesting and, um, you know, the AIs are just getting better and better at it. So that is interesting and cool. All right. So we're going to uh, switch gears again. And we're going to talk about an interesting new technique for imaging ancient sites. And so archaeologists have long debated the purpose of a building that is located in the fortress of Naryankala in Derbent, Russia. And so it dates to around 300 CE, and it is a 36-foot deep cross-shaped structure. Um, at this point, it's almost completely below ground. Uh, the only part of it above the ground is the top of a broken uh, roof dome. It was actually covered by Arab invaders in around 700 CE. Now, the site is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and so no invasive excavations can take place there. So you can't do a dig of any kind. And again, it's buried. <laughs> and so the structure has alternatively been called a water reservoir, a Christian church, and a zoo an Zoroastrian fire temple, according to the NISIS National University of Science and Technology in Russia. And so a group of researchers from NISIS and from some other institutions in Russia used cosmic rays to create an image of the structure. The technique is called muon radiography. And so cosmic rays are basically constantly raining down on the earth, but most of them are filtered out by being absorbed by molecules in the upper atmosphere. But some of them actually do kind of careen off and actually manage to hit the earth. And those are called muons. And so by calculating the density of muon particles in a space, a sort of picture can be created because as muons travel through solid objects, they actually slow down. And so you can figure out, you can do mathematical calculations of how much the muons are slowing down in order to figure out what is between the muon and you. And so the problem though, is that the soil and the structure need to have at least a 5% distance difference in density, because otherwise it just all looks the same, uh, obviously. Luckily, the surrounding area of this particular uh, building did have enough difference. So the researchers placed muon detectors around 33 feet inside of the structure and let them run for two months. So obviously you have to let it run for a while because muons are uh, pretty rare on a sort of, you know, minute, hour, day uh, 
timeline. But if you let them accumulate for several months, then you can get this. And they were actually able to create a um, fairly, fairly good uh, 3D image of the structure. And so the researchers suggest that the structure might have been used for water storage in the 17th and 18th centuries, but that it was not built for this particular use. It seems very strange to me to interpret this building as a water tank, co-author Natalia Poliknian, uh, a physicist at the MISIS, um, said in a statement. Two important facts suggest that this is indeed correct, uh, that that was not the original purpose. First, archaeologists have found a rectangular tank structure that almost certainly was used as a water cistern. Uh, and secondly, the building would have originally been on the surface of the peak. What is the sense to put the tank on the surface and even on the highest mountain, she asked. Currently, there are more questions than answers. And so the researchers hope to create a more detailed 3D model of the building in the future. However, this was actually more of a test of the technique than an actual exploration of the structure. It just happened to be a good one to, uh, to do this with. And so part of the problem actually with imaging this particular site, so it's actually, um, there are some challenges as others have pointed out, which is that the only accessible place is the center of the building. And so it would be better if you were able to situate more muon detectors at other angles. And so that would give it more of a composite um, image. And of course, it still shows though, but it does still show that using muons muon detection might be useful as a non-invasive way to image structures where excavations can't be conducted for whatever reason. Um, and so it's interesting because it's a little bit still controversial, I think, as well, because um, the other famous version of uh, muon detection, uh, muon radiography, was when uh, people suggested that there are voids in uh the Great Pyramid, and there's still some actual sort of debate about that. And, you know, so it might just be that there's a different kind of um, material that is causing a false reading. We don't know yet, but um, it is really interesting. I would love to have seen more of the image. They didn't really show it um, in the papers that I saw. So, um, I think it's interesting. I think it's definitely something that should be explored. Um, and I think it's interesting to figure out what this uh, structure actually was. Like, I really do want to know what it was. Um, because, for instance, if it actually was a Christian church, it would be the oldest one so far found in Russia. And honestly, one of the oldest ones, period, um, because it would have come from around the third century. And so, yeah, that would be really cool and so hopefully they will actually figure out some more um, information about how that building was used. And they will also develop a better way to use those muons in order to create these sort of uh, sort of uh, cosmic X-ray uh, images. Okay, so a few centuries before this building was created, uh, the Roman Empire was flourishing with a large harbor called uh, Portus serving Rome. 
So it was actually a complex of basins and canals that linked the commercial harbor to the city via the Tiber River. Construction on Portus began in the middle of the first century CE and was for more than 400 years the gateway to the Mediterranean for Romans in Rome. It features a large hexagonal basin, uh, which apparently can still be seen today near Rome's uh, Fiumicino Airport. Uh, I did actually try and look on Google Maps and it didn't show anything. Uh, the outline was almost right to the shore. There was no uh, deep imaging of the uh, ocean in that area. I just used Google Maps. Maybe we'd have better uh, luck on uh, Google Earth, but I wasn't able to see anything. Dating ancient harbor sediments is a major challenge given ports are not only subject to weather events throughout history, but the lasting effects of human activity, said Dr. Agatha Lise Pronovst, an archaeology research fellow and a marine geologist at La Trobe University. Lise and her team had to employ a variety of tombs. A variety of tools, excuse me. According to the paper, we used piston coring, high resolution core scanning, and a multi proxy sediment analysis, including for the first time paleo and rock magnetism and bulk and clay mineral mineralogy in order to overcome the problems of dating harbor deposits and correlating their stratigraphy. And so what they concluded, among other things about the actual port itself, uh, was that sedimentary magnetism is actually a versatile tool that can be added to the geoarchaeologist toolkit. Um, so again, these sort of multi-layered um, papers where they're both saying, we've and examined this cool thing, but we've also found this new technique that you can use. Um, so I think that's very cool. And so using these techniques, uh, it allowed them to create a picture of major events that shaped the port, including a previously undocumented dredging event. Ancient harbors, harbors can accumulate sediments more rapidly than natural environments, which is the case of Portis, built in a river delta and where sediment accumulated at a rate of about one meter per century, uh, Dr. Lise Provenost said. Now, applying these methods allowed us to date and precisely reconstruct the sequence of events of the historical port, including dredging to maintain enough draft and canal gate use. The findings suggest that the Romans were proactively managing their river systems from earlier than previously thought, as early as the 2nd century CE. Um, and there is some interesting uh, talk about the uh, canal gates. So they didn't find actual um, mermaids of canal gates. They just found uh, sort of circumstantial evidence that they were using canal gates. Um, and so that's something that they want to sort of look at later on again. Now, among the things that they did uncover was a debris layer with abundant ceramic fragments and rocks, which suggests a timeline for the decommissioning of the canal Traverso during a time when the Roman Empire was declining. The researchers note, the capacity to close the only inland water waterway from the Tiber River to the capital city's harbor basins would undoubtedly 
undoubtedly have been advantageous during flood events and at times of war. The sedimentary archives in Portis have an undeniably strong anthropogenic influence. The depositional basin itself is man-made, and the site has witnessed intense human activity. Core CPSI provided provides evidence of over one and a half centuries of nearly annually resolved harbor occupation at the height of the Roman Empire, with humans using technology in response to natural environmental and societal stresses. So that is very cool and very interesting. So yeah, again, that's one of those things where um, people who lived in the past were actually really smart and did really cool things like developed whole harbors and actually built them out at, you know, in the first century and second century. Uh, And so that's my sort of continuing theme always is to remember that uh, people in the past were just as smart as us. Uh, They just didn't have the accumulated knowledge that we have. But let us quickly wrap up tonight with another mystery. Researchers studying the Earth's core have found that material from the core has been leaking into the mantle for billions of years. Now, it's really hard to study the core, obviously. Uh, It's far too deep within the Earth to drill. Uh, It's also incredibly hot. In fact, it's the hottest part of the planet, reaching temperatures of 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, It's estimated that 50% of volcanic heat comes from the core. Uh, And so, of course, you know, also... The earth is not hollow, just FYI. (laughs) Uh, And so volcanism is actually, and it may not uh, think, you might not think about this at first uh, glance, but it's actually one of the main ways that the earth cools itself. And so volcanoes such as in Hawaii and Iceland uh, may be linked to the core by mantle plumes that move heat from the core to the surface. Now, the question for decades has been, is there a physical exchange of material or is it just heat energy? And so this new study suggests that there is an exchange of materials and that material from the core has been leaking out of the earth for at least the last 2.5 billion years. So research research by Hanneke Rizzo, an assistant professor at Carleton University, David Murphy, a lecturer in geoscience at the Queensland University of Technology, and Dennis Andralt, a geology professor at the Université Clermont-Auvergne, show that small variations in the ratios of the isotopes of the element tungsten can be used to trace the relative uh, ages and they are actually able to trace the relative abundance of tungsten isotopes in rocks, and they found that older rocks had significantly higher rates of the isotope found in the Earth's core. Interestingly, though, the oldest rocks don't show a change in isotopes. This suggests that prior to 2.5 billion years ago, there was no exchange. And so the researchers suggest the change came from plate tectonics. And so basically, at some point, the uh, the amount of subduction and things that were going on with plate tectonics actually was able to kind of kickstart this um, exchange. And so um, the subduction, of course, is when the... um, when the plates are going underneath other plates and they're going back into the mantle. And so one of the things that they think is that 
at some point, it reached a level where oxygen-rich materials reached the core, and that actually then was able to uh, cause the tungsten to separate out of the core and rise up into the mantle and then be able to come up into the Earth's surface. Now, there's an alternative, though, that it could be that as the inner core solidified, this also increased oxygen concentrations of the outer core. And so that would actually be able to tell them something about the evolution of the core, um, which, of course, includes the evolution of Earth's magnetic field. And so um, it's just really interesting. And so uh, they're definitely going to try and do some more work on that. And so the timing of uh, inner core crystallization is actually one of the most difficult questions uh, to answer. So hopefully maybe this will give them some way to kind of map that. All right. So that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Again, please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next and have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.